Sterling Silver Premium Meats are high-quality beef cuts, perfectly marbled and graded high-end AAA. Let your culinary mastery shine brighter than ever using Sterling Silver. Visit centennialfoodservice.com for details. Welcome to Table Talk, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the dynamic and exciting restaurant world. We sit down with industry leaders as they share best practices, highlight smart solutions, and discuss strategies for growth, ultimately helping food service operators learn how to affect positive change and grow their business. Now, here is your host, editor and publisher of Food Service and Hospitality Magazine, Rosanna Kyra. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Chef Daniel Hadida to my Table Talk podcast. Daniel is the executive chef of Perimore Set, having joined the restaurant as its vineyard chef in 2015. Inspired by the environment and the importance of small organic farming, Chef Daniel introduced the idea of opening a restaurant at the Niagara Winery. The idea later came to fruition, and the culinary experience at the restaurant of Pearl Morissette reflects the integrity of the local ingredients. Prior to joining Pearl Morissette, Chef Daniel held various positions at premier restaurants worldwide. He's worked for three years as the chef tournant at Toronto's highly rated Nota Bene restaurant. He also worked for 10 months at Edelis Restaurant in Toronto. But Daniel's appetite to travel and learn more about the culinary arts took him to Europe, where he worked as a chef at Le Chateaubriand and as a pastry chef at the Michelin-starred Septime, two of Paris's top restaurants, as well as in South America, where he worked as a cook at the Pujol restaurant and at Central in Lima. Daniel has spent time working on organic and biodynamic farms around France and Belgium, some of the most significant experience he's had in terms of influencing the operations at the restaurant at Pearl Morissette and impacting its success in terms of cultivating relationships with farmers and producers. So welcome, Daniel, and I'm thrilled to have you here today. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Rosanna. I appreciate it, and I, I appreciate the very thorough introduction. I think I have to I have to uh, take issue with the term executive chef. Um, I don't think those are two words that I hope to never have to associate myself with directly. I think uh, you know in an in a non humble brag way, I think I'd like to always consider myself as a cook. Uh, I think that's really what the job is, and that's why I focus my energy. Uh, as uh, in terms of ex executive, uh, I could really care less about that sort of framework, <laughs> and and uh, it's some, certainly uh, the, the notion of titles. And bureaucracy is something that we uh, absolutely reject um, in the context of, of the restaurant here. Um, and I just like to think of myself more so as like maybe an effective leader with an entrepreneurial mindset and a uh, high level of empathy. That's uh, my, my major role within the company here. So, Well, thank you so much for clarifying that. And I should have remembered that from countless conversations we've had in the past that I know you, you don't really like that title, but uh, it's an old habit for me, you know, with uh, years of experience in the industry referring to people as executive chefs, but totally unnoted. And, and thank you for clarifying that. Um, going through that bio makes me feel like getting on a plane and heading to Europe, you know, it just opens up those uh, memories of, of travel, which I think we're all missing so much these days. But um, I thought today we could start um, a little bit with you telling us uh, about your role at the at Pearl Morissette. And I know you joined in 2015, but for our listeners who perhaps aren't as familiar with the restaurant, 
Can you maybe fill us in a little bit about uh, the whole concept behind the restaurant at the vineyard? Yeah, so um, when I began with uh, Pro Morissette, um, there was no intention uh, for a restaurant or anything like that. Um, traditionally, they had had uh, some version of a cook working on the property, uh, more so in a role of, um, uh, you know, when they were hosting uh, visiting winemakers or, excuse me, when they would be having, um, you know, a, a restaurant customer from Toronto coming out to visit or something along those lines uh, when they were hosting other sort of industry professionals and things like that, um, that, that that person would, would fill that role and at the same time be, you know, a bit of a farmhand, um, perhaps do a little bit of gardening or something like that. And traditionally it had been, you know, like a student chef or something along those lines. And so when I joined on, I joined on very much, you know, I had just come back from Latin America and uh, the word, I don't know if burnt out is necessarily the right word, but I was uh, unsure of, of what to do next and where I wanted things to go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on one hand, one stick around in Canada and on the other hand, um, didn't really see a lot of opportunities that I was excited about and certainly didn't foresee myself, um, you know, establishing a business uh, at that time um, because I still kind of had a notion that I, you know, wanted to see what other options were out there or, or continue to, to learn in that sense. And uh, so very much viewed the position as something um, to do in transition. And uh, after being here for a few months, had a really great feel for the team and the environment and the intentions here. And, um, you know, we're in some conversations about a space that was available on the property that had uh, yet to have found, um, uh, you know, a a reason for existing. And and, uh, so made a pitch about doing a restaurant in that space. I, I don't know if bluff is necessarily the right word, but it's not so far off, I think, from what I was at. And, and I think, luckily, there was a good uh, a good trust that had been built by that point, because I certainly wasn't the most effective either at necessarily communicating a vision. Uh, it was something that I felt very passionately about. And mm-hmm. I think that's where the belief was put in, that it seems like this guy's on to something. It seems like he knows what he's doing. Let's give it a shot. And and that exercise is very much in the spirit of how a lot of things um, happen here at the Pro Morissa. And you can look at some of the projects we've taken on since then that have followed that same framework. Uh, you know, find great people, uh, empower them to do really exciting things and, and kind of get out of the way. And, um, you know, I, I had no notion of, you know, culture or mission statement or anything like that. I was just, you know, working in great kitchens and was good, as cook- was good at cooking and figured that would be enough. I'll figure out the rest as we go. And very naive. <laughs> and uh, so, so um, fortunately, you know, we were able to connect with some really great people early on uh, that have, have really helped to, to take that sort of very uh, abstract uh, notion and, and, and help to develop that into the business that it is today, which has been something that's really, really exciting and, and sort of has brought us to this point. So that was the, the sort of infant, uh, you know, to, to, to teen years that we're in right now of, of the business. So would you, um, when you look at the restaurant and, and how it works and the concept, do you think of yourself as a winery restaurant or do you think of yourself as a restaurant period? How, how do you see that? Well, I don't know that I, I know what the definition of a winery restaurant would be, like what sort of parameters have to exist, but it certainly wasn't the guiding motivation for me, nor was it something overly important for um, the overall business of, of Pro Morissette. Um, what was more important was doing something really exciting and beautiful and and uh, that challenged the status quo and thought outside the box and worked in really honest and, and a thoughtful way. So, um you know, anything beyond that, uh, I'll leave it to others to define what that is. I, I don't. Okay. You don't want to put box around it or, you know, you want, you want. To I mean, I just don't, I just, yeah, I just, 
yeah, it's just not the way that I think about it. I think that's maybe the, the where that comes from. I, I don't think about sure. it in terms of what is a winery restaurant versus what it, what it, what is a restaurant, you know. Sure. So in terms of number of seats, um, how big is the restaurant and is it open for both lunch and dinner or, or is it just for the dinner service? I know these days it's all different with COVID. It was. And, and yeah. we'll get to that in a moment. But before COVID, pre-COVID, was it uh, just a dinner service that you were doing or, or is it both? Or so, was it both? Uh, yeah, so the restaurant was operating um, for both uh, lunch and dinner. Um, not every day. We would do lunch on Saturdays and Sundays and dinner from Thursdays through Sundays. Uh, and uh, we sat comfortably 34. We could stretch it to about 38 if we needed to, but comfortably 34. That's in a 3,000 square foot space, um, which for anyone that's familiar with the economics of the restaurant uh, doesn't work on paper. Um, but uh, we were very, 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 very fortunate, again, to be in the countryside, uh, be in that sort of pre-built space and have partners that very much believed in the idea of doing something specific and intentional um, versus a catch-all. You know, our end goal isn't uh, to, you know, make buckets of cash. It's to create something that we're, um, that tells an important story and, and shares really valuable information in, in as honest a way as possible. Um, so, yeah, 34 seats. Okay. And, and when you talk about an important story, you know, what is that important story for you? When you're, when you're cooking, obviously you're influenced by a lot of different factors, but what kind of cuisine, you know, turns you on in terms of uh, projecting that in your restaurant space? What's the story at Pearl Morissette? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think at the heart of it, what we're trying to accomplish here is work with, uh, develop partnerships and collaborations with with producers um, that uh, are operating in a way that's as thoughtful to their own environment as possible. Um, be that, you know, vegetable farmers, uh, our own um, uh, gardens and farms that we have on the property here, uh, you know, livestock ranchers, foragers, uh, fisher people, um, mm -hmm. you know, anything along those lines. Uh, you know, we're really trying to seek out and discover those that are operating uh, at a level that's really exciting to us and again sort of tells a story of tradition and thoughtfulness and a holistic approach to um, developing and improving upon uh, their work um, and then assembling that or maybe even sort of curating that uh, in a way that allows us to express it in uh, and sort of delight people with that um, because that's our hook point and then occasionally, uh, you know, people will be so immersed in that experience that they really want to understand more uh, about where those things came from or why or how. And from that point is, is where the experience, I think, probably changes for uh, someone dining at the restaurant, where it goes from being sort of entertainment and escapism to um, hopefully like mind bending. Uh, because when we're talking about what you know, real sustainable production means or what a really holistic food system means, I don't think the average person is very in tune with that. And mm -hmm. I think when a lot of people talk about, you know, you know, obviously that catch-all phrase like farm to table, like I, I, it's, that phrase is problematic for a number of reasons. Um, definitely one of which is, is how overused it is. Um, but I think when people understand like what, what that process means from start to finish, of you know what that means for soil, what that means for labor, what that means for uh, an environmental standpoint, what it means to uh, put more back into nature than you take away, or to follow uh, natural processes and uh, just sort of extract food as a byproduct from that. Um, you know that's one element of it. The next element is ensuring that that's something that's incredibly delicious and very highly nutritious, and then taking that again and applying a massive amount of creativity and technique 
um, to turn it into something that is uh, evocative and dynamic and challenging and also familiar and comforting and nostalgic and satisfying, which is incredibly mm-hmm. important for us. Um, so in terms of a style of cuisine, like I'm not going to say like it's Japanese or it's French or something like that. We use the, the term uh, that it's um, inspired by French technique, I think, which has more to do with giving a really distilled version or something that people can sort of latch onto because having like an evolved conversation about, you know, sort of trying to define Canadian food within the context of our environment, uh, is, it requires a bit more a bit more nuanced to that conversation, sure. right? So, so yeah, I don't think we root it specifically in any, um, you know, it's this or it's that. It's it's more uh, an exploration of of what's out there and um, a process of considering, you know, if we were a food region like Dijon or like Tuscany mm-hmm. or or like what Scandinavia is becoming or like, uh, you know, uh, you know what Mexico, uh, what Mexico City or Oaxaca is like. Um, you know, what sort of decisions would we make? What, what accountability would we hold ourselves to? Uh, you know, how would that look? How would that feel? What is it at, at its best? What, what are the huge challenges there? Because that to me is way more exciting than how effectively can we mimic uh, something else? Or even worse than that, how effectively can we reinterpret, um, you know, really great ideas from another place in, in an environment where they're completely out of context? Right. Um, so, so from everything you're saying, two words that would come to mind would be hyper-local and, and maybe sustainability as being really key cornerstones of what you're doing. I assume you have your own garden uh, area too, where you're you know, producing um, vegetables or herbs. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so you know, hyper-local I have to address right away because um, that was something that I think was like very primary right off the hop. But the the one area where we found ourselves really missing out was on, excuse me, ocean fish and shellfish. Right. And so that's definitely an area we've extended a little bit. That's pretty much the only area we don't focus on um, made in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Uh, cheese, some cheese we'll get from Quebec as well. But aside from that, we Ontario. But for us, it's also very important to like challenge ourselves, have fun with this stuff. You know, it's a very it's a very strange path that uh, uh, shellfish and, and wild fish and shellfish has taken in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something, it, I, it's very odd. It's, uh, I, I haven't looked deep enough into the sort of legislation and lobbying that took place to get us to this very dark, dark spot where the best of what we produce is, is frozen and sent away and then often sold back to us through foreign markets or just completely inaccessible. And the strange laws that sort of define what is acceptable and what isn't and how right complicated it is domestically to get access to this stuff. Um, so that story was really interesting to me. And um, we're just scratching the surface of trying to kind of figure that out a little bit and figure out, you know, where our place within it is, mm-hmm. if any. But that's something that we're, we're really interested in engaging in. And at the same time, we just have such high quality shellfish and fish that we produce here when we deal directly with the fishermen. Um, so that's kind of we step outside of, of hyper locality um, a little bit in in that sense. But um, yeah, aside from that, you know, I think uh, we, we absolutely grow. We have I think, about a one and a half acre vegetable farm mm-hmm. um, on the property, in addition to about a three quarter acre um, herb and flower garden. Um, uh, we produce all the four arrangements that we do in the restaurant, which doesn't seem like a big thing, but it's actually a massive uh, undertaking and, and really important. Um, we produce all of that on site as well. Um, and so th- there's a couple of 
benefits to that or a couple of reasons, I suppose, behind that. Um, one of which is, of course, just access, right? You know, our pantry now encompasses everything that exists, um, you know, within the property and, and sort of in our surroundings, which means that, you know, when you're thinking of a dish, you can suddenly reference like the fava bean leaves, right? The fava beans are just starting to grow, but we want to use the leaves for something. And right. you can't, you typically don't have that luxury um, working inside of a restaurant. You can talk about the shoots of something, you know, very soon we'll start digging through the snow and harvesting, you know, field crest that's coming up. Um, water crest will be coming up uh, very shortly that we that we harvest from um, uh, uh, called a natural spring that's not so far away from us. And you, you can't really make those decisions if you have to rely on a middleman or a distributor or someone to tell you what's available. It's much, right. it's much more straightforward when you just sort of have access or relationship with um, where those things come from. And uh, ultimately that tends to drive a lot of what we do here. And in fact, even at this point, like, you know, the flavors of the herb garden, um, you know, we grow a really extensive herb garden with a, a really diverse array of flavors and aromas. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, you know, our, the gardener who's here, Deirdre, has really driven a lot of um, those flavors that are now um, very much aligned with the restaurant. So, you know, anise and rose and, and uh, different sort of flavors like that that are, that are very much lined up with what we do here. And, and that's helped to drive a direction we take with the food, which is, you know, taking the ingredients that we have access to and really starting trying to push the uh, extremes of the flavor um, and, and to often try and create something that tastes like not at all coming from that place. And that isn't necessarily the end goal, but that's just sort of part of the path of understanding, you know, what is it that does really well here? What do we have access to? And how can we use that in a really exciting way? And always like the bottom line is delighting the people that, that come to eat it and, and sort of engaging in those questions. But, um, you know, the, our, our process tends to be speaking to farmers, you know, farmers always want to, we start working with farmers directly, you know, every year around this time of year for the last, let's say, month or so, and probably for the next couple of weeks, as they're buying seeds, they want to ask you, hey, what should we grow? What should we grow? What should we grow? And our response has always been the same, which is whatever you like growing the most or grows best on your property. And we'll do the rest. Like our job is to do everything else. If you grow amazing stuff, you know, if you've got sandy soil and it makes sense to grow your vegetables, do that. If you've got, you know, uh, you know, really humid area and, and, and you want to grow lots of herbs as well, that, like do that, you know, and we'll buy it and we'll make the best of it. And like the more you do that and the better that you get at it, the better our whole sort of food economy comes in this area and so that's where we very much view ourselves as working collaboratively with these producers as part of a circle of a sustainable food system whereby we are one stop on that circle um whereas i think too often in my experience restaurants view themselves as at like the top of the pyramid mm -hmm. and um, that's a hierarchy for me that is demonstrably false and also really problematic because um you know the example that i always give is the, you know, the farmer shows up with, with the tomato and the restaurant takes the tomato, slices it, pours some olive oil on top that they got from wherever the hell, put some of that flake salt that comes from uh, France or England or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, bam, that's the, and it's some micro herbs that they got off, you know, Johnny's micro herb or whatever on the farm that tastes like nothing. Right. And boom, that's the front cover of, of your magazine. And, and hey, those guys are top 10 restaurant in the country. And it's like, you, you almost couldn't have done less to be involved in this process. You're talking about a farmer that's probably spent at that point, five months thinking about that tomato from seed to actually mm -hmm. harvesting the ingredient, you know, never mind the myriad other elements that go into it. So how is it that the restaurant is the most important part of this? It's quite simply not. All that it really is, is the public facing representative of all the work that's gone into it at that point. And I think that that framework and that way of thinking is a, is a really important humbling and grounding um, idea to be extremely aware of at all times as, uh, you know, uh, uh, the restaurant operator. So. 
Sounds like you have a great relationship with the farmers and you really work together, as you said, collaboratively. So mm-hmm. um, that gives you a lot more scope for, for turning out great products that you can incorporate on your menu. Um, speaking about that menu, how do you structure the menu? Is it a tasting menu or, or is it done differently? Um, I know you're quite unique in your approach to that. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so since day one, we've always operated with what is, I guess, referred to as like a blind tasting menu or a carte blanche uh, menu, whereby essentially um, we don't share any information about what the menu is prior to coming to dime. Most often, um, this would say this would be pre-COVID, but most often we would um, not, you wouldn't even have a copy of the menu on the table um, until the end of the meal, which at which point you could request really? a copy and then we'd have something typed up. So there's a couple of reasons for this. Um, you know, the dramatic element is certainly one. I mean, we're, we're entertainment. There's no question about that. But it isn't. That's more of a byproduct. Um, what it has more to do with is it gives us the freedom to change things as often as we deem necessary. And quite often, we're changing the menu even multiple times throughout the service. Sometimes. Really? That often? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, not, not all, there could be a dish that stays, that stays in, in a you know, general version of itself for three, four weeks. There can be something that lasts for half a night or for the first 10 tables that come in. Um, and that can be, you know, as varied as, hey, it's, uh, you know, it's razor clam season right now. That's like for the next month, we're definitely serving razor clams. And if, you know, the first or second iteration of a razor clam dish really, really, you know, hits and it really makes sense and it's really, you know, sort of the right fit for that, then that's likely to stay on for the duration of that season. Because, you know, why screw around with something? You know, our focus is going to be on, you know, doing an even better job of, of procuring, storing, um, preparing and, and, and serving that shellfish that really understand it really well, or it could be the case of, you know, hey, as would often happen, hey, uh, the guy, the guy who lives down the street who sometimes brings us mushrooms, just showed up and has a giant deer decoy in the back of his truck that he's got to chuck over the side to the horror of people, you know, standing there. <laughs> but then he pulls out, you know, the most beautiful maitake and hands it over, and it's like they get the pan on, look at some butter going, like there's a maitake course getting added to the menu, and so that spontaneity can also be very accurately referred to as chaos. Um, but that the, the removing the emotional anxiety of that chaos and just focusing on the, um, uh, challenge and the spontaneity of it allows it to create something really beautiful. So not, uh, putting a framework in place of, well, here's the menu and it's set and nothing can change on that is really important to that. It requires a ton of energy, a lot of input and a lot of patience amongst, amongst the team that's here. And so that's where the work has to be done that one for sure. Um, but that being said, uh, the, the final component that also comes into play is um, North America and Canada and Southern Ontario is a tough market for thinking outside the box. Um, you know, if you're doing, uh, yeah, without disparaging anything, but it, it, the I don't like that factor or the I'm not sure factor um, just doesn't have a place here. I mean, we're damn good at this. We know we know what the deal is. We know what's right because we've been talking to the right people. You know, I don't care that you don't like eggplant. Like, just try it. And if you, you know, if you didn't like it this time, we'll cook you something else, but like, just get over it. You're in like, I don't know, man, you're an adult, you know, like just try stuff, you know? So we don't really mess around with that too much. Like, you know, we, 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 so, so that gives us that option where if someone looks at it, they can't say like, Oh, mushroom, I don't like mushrooms. And instead what we hear all the time is, you know, I, I normally hate mushrooms and I absolutely love that dish. Or, you know, my kid has never eaten fish and I absolutely love the fish. And I'm sure, you know, for every one of those, there's the, I didn't, you know, necessarily like that flavor so much, but guess what? You know, you want rotisserie chicken 
go to the rotisserie chicken place. Or, you know, you want a hamburger, you want something consistent, go to the consistent place. We're the place that changes stuff all the time and it's always thinking outside of the box. And, you know, people come here because they believe that there's merit to that. So that's very much what we are. And, and we're very unapologetic about that. So COVID made an adjustment because we couldn't spend as much time doing tabletop explanations and we had to adjust our processes. So in that sense, you would get a copy of the menu when you sat down. So, Yeah, I was going to ask you, how do you deal with, you know, people who are resisting to, to try something or even people who have allergies and maybe can't eat certain things? Um, and if you don't know that ahead of time, how do you how do you, how do you respond to that, I guess? Yeah, so so both of those things were much more of a challenge when the restaurant first opened. Um, so uh, when it comes to the first part of, uh, in terms of when people don't like something or whatever the case is, um, now we have an established enough reputation that generally people know more or less what they're getting themselves mm -hmm. into, or at least by the time they get here, they're open to it. You know, there's a trust that's been built there, which is extremely helpful. Um, if someone genuinely doesn't like something, you know, if it's just one person in the week that didn't like one thing about one dish, you know, we'll, we'll kind of smooth it over and we'll make it work that thing. But if we notice that maybe two or three people in the course of a night didn't love something, we'll typically have, we'll, we'll first we'll assess, you know, is it, is it the preparation or is it something that we've done right. or is it just that it's a bit challenging and, and, but we're really, we really stand behind it. So that could involve either, you know, evolving or rethinking the dish, or it could be a case of, um, of uh, actually having a, a backup dish that's ready to go. That's uh, less challenging. So, you know, we found that when working with sea urchin, um, you know, 80% of people will have their mind blown. 10% of people will be unsure, but okay. And 10% of people will be like, I don't like the taste of this. Please get this away from me. Right. And so that's when we'll have, you know, the backup uh, roasted mushroom dish or the backup duck confit dish that we know is going to be a winner that we can sort of flip right in there. And I feel that's our responsibility, given that we're not providing that menu ahead of time. That's our responsibility as hospitality sure. professionals. Um, when it comes to allergies, uh, again, this was something that we really struggled with at the onset of the restaurant because I was not prepared for how meticulous people are at recording every single thing um, that they uh, that they can't uh, they, they, that they can they can't consume, and it was something that we had to go through so many uh, like thought processes to get a handle on how we really wanted to manage it. And you know, we talked about you know we're talking about a, like a nine course menu or a ten course menu or an eleven course like you know it changed it varies, but like mm -hmm. you know if someone comes in and, and they say oh by the way I don't eat butter it's like nine courses that's going to affect it you know depending on what the menu is or if they come in the middle of winter and say they don't really eat um grains like that's a major problem if you come in the winter time and say you don't eat shellfish you know that's an issue so on one hand we've gotten first of all we accepted that it's a, that it is absolutely a part of our reality and as such we will accommodate any and all dietary restrictions as they come to us um we don't advertise that and i'm my, my hope is that it's predominantly uh, it's predominantly trades that are that are listening to this right now. But you know, it's not something that we actively go out there and say, "Hey, bring us whatever you bought," because that's not the point. Like we spend so much effort already conceiving of all of these really dynamic menus, and every time that we then have to rethink elements of it, we've already set so many limitations. Adding more onto that is a huge challenge, and it is a huge time eater as well. But at the same time, you know, when someone comes in and they're vegan and and they let us know ahead of time. And we're able to, you know, build out a whole menu that way with our same intention and our same mm. quality of ingredients. Like the delight is, you know, just people are so grateful and so ecstatic and, and everything like that. So that's very fulfilling in that sense. But um, it's also, you know, we don't prepare the menu ahead of time. So if you come in here as a vegetarian, the menu you get at the end of the meal will reflect the, the menu that you had. And we've had people break down tears because, you know, you know, I've never had that experience anywhere I've ever gone. I get the side vegetables off the dish and that sort of bit, whereas here we'll build out a whole menu. So right. that in and of itself became, it's, it's really like a new area of the restaurant. We probably need at least 
we probably, as a result, operate with at least one more member of staff, if not even more than that, in order to accommodate, because we're talking at this point, probably 50% plus of, of diners coming in to eat have dietary restrictions that we have to, that affect the menu wow. on any given, on any given night. Um, sometimes less, definitely sometimes more, but I'd say in and around there. And so, yeah, I would say at least one extra member of staff, never mind how much, um, uh, energy it requires of the entire staff to be able to respond to that because that means that the person serving you needs to understand all of the changes those of need course. to be conceived of they need to be prepared those ingredients need to be sourced the accompanying wines or pairings need to be adjusted as a result the service style may need to be adjusted the menus need to be printed out differently that requires someone doing that as well so the amount of extra you know labor that goes into that is is definitely significant but we have um, rectified that by uh, the quality of experience and the quality of hospitality that that brings to those people, which we find to be generally overwhelmingly um, grateful and, and things like that. So, sounds like a huge challenge. I, I I don't know how you do it with all those different layers of complexity and 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 mm-hmm. everything that you deal with, and and then of course over the last year we've had this whole other layer of complexity through COVID. And I would imagine that a restaurant like yours, I mean, every restaurant in the industry has been affected to some degree, but I would imagine that you would have been really affected just by the style of restaurant that you are and, and the, you know, the, the restrictions that have been put in place. How have you been coping through, through this pandemic at the restaurant? I mean, I imagine in the beginning, you had to lay quite a few people off. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, I mean, so that was... That in and of itself was extremely challenging. Uh, unfortunately, the week before lockdown, uh, we had one week of service, but the, the sort of weeks, two weeks before lockdown, uh, we had closed the restaurant for our sort of like getting ready for spring and summer, you know, renovate, redo the floors, repaint, mm-hmm. uh, entire staff on holiday. Um, and we had just finished investing in a ton of infrastructure for our garden. Uh, so right away, we were kind of starting on our back foot, which which was difficult, which really upped the challenge for sure. Um, you know, it required us taking stock of what we are, uh, and that was an important exercise because um, before we're a restaurant, we're a business that's focused on uh, telling the story of a sustainable uh, food system, and uh, uh, by providing an experience that delights people. You know, that that those two points are really what's important to us, and that most certainly doesn't require tables and chairs and four walls in order to do. There's a lot of ways to express that. So just getting to the heart of that helps to alleviate that initial anxiety because it's because it, we said okay you know getting it down to brass tacks here now that we've got this we can build upon that and so you know our big pluses were our supply chain couldn't have been less negatively affected i mean we were to the contrary we had farmers calling us up left and right saying hey you know i no longer have a terminus for um you know uh, this hundred dozen eggs that someone put in order for i've got two cows i've just slaughtered that are hanging um you know you know what sort of options uh can you guys present here and so our approach was just kind of say yes to everything and, and to all these farmers that we were used to working with, just, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, we'll take it. Yeah, we'll take it. Yeah, we'll take it. And we had a bunch of meat in our fridge that was aging as well um, mm-hmm. from that lockdown time. So it made a lot of sense. To, you know, we have a lot of capability to age meat here. It's something we're really familiar with. Uh, we didn't throw We certainly didn't throw anything out. I mean, we are preserving for us something that's second nature at this point. And so there, that was a non-issue for us. And, and, you know, we've got farmers coming out of the woodwork saying, I've got mm-hmm. everything, you know, what can we do? So our first response was to essentially operate as a market. Oh. And what we would do is, yeah, collect all of these different ingredients from all these different producers and then provide it in a fairly straightforward way. So whether that was just butchered meat or, um, uh, you know, p- pretty much raw materials. And, and essentially the goal was, you know, get this from the farmers to the people, uh, inform the people that these farms exist and sort of direct them in ways that they can contact them 
directly and, and hopefully build something from that. A conduit to the farms, not through you specifically. No, well, I would say we were operating as the market because we had, you know, we could fix things up. You know, when we're buying, when we're buying meat, we don't buy a loin, we buy three pigs. Right. right. So, so, and, and, you know, the farmer we work with, like they bring the pigs to the slaughterhouse. Then a couple of days later, they pick them up from the slaughterhouse and they bring them here. Like it's, there's no process in between that. So, you know, we were butcher shop, we were grocery, we were baker, we were, uh, you know, prepare foods market, sort of whatever we had to do. And it served a few purposes. One was that it very effectively got as many, as much, excuse me, as much ingredients in here as possible. Two is that, you know, a, a very obvious need was for people to get access to high quality, healthy food. I mean, that was, you know, such a straightforward thing, especially, you know, with the cold grocery shortage BS that was sort of coming up, right? Yep. And we just thought there's no grocery shortage. It's just there's, there's a, a failure of access, right? It's not right. the supply that's failed. It's the logistics that have failed here. And um, so that made a lot of sense, you know, get people access to, to healthy food. And, and finally, then also providing opportunities um, for us internally as well for our staff and, mm-hmm. and to get people sort of working and to maintain momentum. So we actually made that decision really quickly um, just based on pragmatism. We had a bunch of meat in the fridge. People needed to eat. You know, we need to sort of get get rolling. And so I think it was probably about a week and a half after lockdown that we started saying, hey, we've got, you know, some steaks available. We've got some pork available. You know, let, let us know who's interested. And I think it was really just like post something on Instagram, you know, see what people say. And we operated that until a point where we felt that people were starting to more and more effectively communicate directly with farmers or, um, you know, we stopped baking bread at home. They were tired of that. Yeah. And at that point, we transitioned into doing take-home meals. And we experimented with a few different forms of that. Um, and we probably spent a couple of weeks doing it. Um, but really, we got to a point in the summertime where uh, we were able to open up out for outdoor dining. And Daddy. it's not something we've ever had anything to do with at the restaurant. And um, we talked about initially, like, you know, do we just make a meal and then offer it to people, um, uh, you know, with a, with a blanket that they can put outdoors and, and keep it really simple, but ultimately decided to approach it with the same level of commitment and, and uh, intention and integrity that we try and approach everything with here, um, which resulted in us putting together the most like over the top outdoor restaurant, essentially, that, that we could have possibly done. Amazing. And um, uh, that was something I was very nervous about because I didn't know what sort of response there would be or how people would engage with it or how potentially successful it was. And it was obviously a fairly significant investment. And we figured there was a real shelf life on that as well. You know, we might be able to run it from end of July until let's say October. And that's sort of mm-hmm. what we built our plans around. Um, but fortunately that sort of exceeded our expectations on all fronts. Um, you know, it was, uh, we brought on actually a ton of new staff during that time. I think we ended up hiring 10, over 10 people oh, um, wow. during that time. Yeah. Which, which was really that's you know, great. Like, sort of great quality people that, that really have brought a lot to the team. Um, pushed ourselves in a, in a ton of new directions, um, you know, rethought sort of what, how we consider um, serving people on site here, which was really uh, engaging as well. And I mean, it was, it was a very difficult project around as well. There's a lot of moving parts, which required empowering a lot more people to step mm-hmm. into uh, decision-making roles, which is something that I think is extremely exciting. Um, and we were, we were able to run that until the end of December, uh, which absolutely blows my mind but you know at that point it was December you said yes yes it was December 20th I think right before we were about to go on holidays and it was yeah we got the the word of a lockdown that we were able to do it so I think every party that was involved with that whether it was the rental companies or you know some of the producers involved in it or you know uh, us internally were never thought that that was gonna be the case whatsoever but the year allowed for it it was a a fairly warm winter and things like that so um uh, that ended up working out yeah certainly quite well for us and and consequently we'll we'll definitely you know we're in the planning processes of doing another uh, tent again for this year. And that quite potentially could turn into a full-time thing for us in terms of doing an outdoor um, component to, to dining on the property. So. 
And so, like you said, you never had explored outdoor patios before and that wasn't part of the concept. So this was all uh, basically new and and an innovative approach for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And during the month of January and now into February, when obviously you can't do the patio, what, what have you been doing the last couple of months as we're still in this lockdown of sorts in Ontario? Yeah, so I think we were very conscious that the potential of being fully locked down again um, in, in the wintertime in January, February and beyond was, was highly likely. Um, so the bet that we made is during December, while well, we felt that people were in, in the, you know, looking for experiences and, and, you know, Christmas and holidays and all that sort of stuff, we put together a package that was um, essentially a, a subscription dining um, uh, offering. And uh, a few different parts went into it. One was going into uh, back vintage library wines from, from Morissette, which is something that we thought was really exciting. Um, two was actually engaging with some of the producers we work with um, to establish some appropriate pantry items that we can include as like a, a, you know, a little extra element to, mm-hmm. to these dinners, these subscriptions, which again is another amazing um, uh, way for people to, to entry point for people into these, working with these sustainable producers, as well as like just revenue for mm-hmm. some of these farmers that we work with. Um, and then the other thing that we wanted to do was just create something that was very much like over the top in um, the attention to detail. So the packaging and the way we build out the food and, you know, how we think of it and creating essentially these take-home tasting menus. Um, and then we, we really built up a multimedia uh, element that goes with that. So, um, you know, instructional videos and a Zoom, uh, live Zoom component that happened between Svetlana, who's the ambassador of the, the winery here, who right. talked about, you know, her experiences with some of these vintage wines as well about and that's actually turned into a really exciting opportunity to collaborate um, more directly with the winery between the winery and the restaurant um you know getting the, the to try some of these you know wines that are 2011 2012 and and build menus that are specific to those wines which is a new exercise for us and then you know send them to people's homes and then have that same um experience of talking to people and answering questions and providing insight on how we sourced it and why and how we thought about it through the live component um, so again, we've had to challenge ourselves in a lot of different ways, but it very much helped us to create a reliable baseline while we were still open to give us, okay, here's, you know, something that we can be working on during these colder months. And we've actually now just extended it into March, given the uncertainty of things and, and sort of the extended lockdowns. Niagara is still in, in lockdown mm-hmm. like Toronto. Um, and then beyond that, at the same time, we've we've been just having a bit of fun, which is doing things like, you know, baking pativiers and, and selling them whenever we that we have enough time to do it or uh, this week we're doing like a fish pie meal that we're sending people home with and for us it was a case of like we're dead in the middle of shellfish season we can't really use that much of the stuff and you know in general you know a lot of shellfish doesn't really translate well to a take-home experience so we right. just ordered in and caught in today a bunch of wild shellfish um from the coast and we're doing like the fish pie that's made with like wild scallops lobster spot ponds uh link um, you know, a bunch of things like that that we're really excited about. We're making these little buns that are covered in a bunch of spices based on herbs that we've grown here. And it's just something for us that's just like enjoyable to do. It's something that we, we would really want to eat. Working with the shellfish is a pleasure for us. And our hope is that people engage with that as well and are excited. And it's a, it's a much more casual offering as well. It's a lower price point. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to commit, you know, in December for something that's going to happen two months later or whatever the case is. And so that's been a fun way for us to um, engage with a bit of a different market and challenge ourselves in a different way. And also fill in some of the blanks, like just get staff in and working on some of those days um, because we aren't able to operate with a full staff at this point. So. Right. And Daniel, do people um, do people pick up the meals or do you have a delivery service? How are you doing that? 
Yeah, that's one of the other challenges. So, so yeah, the big challenge for us is that we are located in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Like our closest, you know, customer is is a fifteen to twenty minute drive away, and I mean that's it's sparsely populated throughout Niagara yeah. and really spread out. Um, but our main market is in Toronto. So we've actually found that um, using pickup points is most effective for us. So that's um, uh, we have a couple of different businesses that we work with in in Hamilton and in Toronto, and we have people pick up from the restaurant locally. Excuse me. Where we're able to essentially bring, you know, a bunch of these things prepped ahead of time that have been pre-ordered to these locations that people can come and pick up. The added benefit is that we get to introduce people to some of these businesses that we're really excited about. So we've been working with Archive, a really great wine bar in Toronto, and that's been a massive supporter of Pearl Morissette uh, throughout the years since its inception, and, and an amazing um, cafe in uh, Hamilton called Duran. Um, that uh, again, we've been uh, using them as, as a consultant essentially for our coffee service that we've been using here at the restaurant since we started. And, and that's been really, really exciting and enjoyable as well. Um, and uh, uh, we do a little bit of delivery as well, but that's we sort of do extra charge and that's not really the direction we're trying to go with it. But yeah, right. certainly having those pickup points has been like absolutely pivotal um, to allowing us to expose ourselves to a larger market. And then something that some of our staff have thrown out here who are from smaller towns that weren't necessarily just Toronto, but mm -hmm. surrounding had suggested that, hey, these areas are a bit starved for some of these exciting opportunities. So we tend to pick um, different locations that we'll do drop-offs intermittently. Like, you know, we've done Kitchener, Waterloo, we've done Ottawa, Guelph, Hamilton is another one, obviously. Um, Prince Edward County we've done as well, which has been really cool as well. And a great chance to engage with, with um, customers that maybe, you know, are, are stuck to their zone or their region or whatever, right? So. That sounds really unique and innovative, and it sounds like a wonderful idea. Kudos to you for uh, for dealing with that. Uh, it's yeah, thanks so much. So, so, Daniel, you and I have had some talks in the past just about the state of the industry and you know um, what's wrong with the industry and what can be improved. And I think the pandemic has really shone a light on some of the flaws that exist. And obviously, you know, the business model itself with low profit margins is is a is a huge challenge for most restaurants. Um, do you think that this pandemic has forced people to look at how the industry works or doesn't work uh, as well um, over the last year? And, and what do you see as maybe some of the changes that can be made moving forward to, to fix some of those issues um, that exist and have existed for a long time? Big question, Rosanna, big question. <laughs> it is a big question. Yeah. Um, so I'll try and have a stab at it. So I heard a phrase early on that, that uh, definitely sat with me. And that was that, um, you know, extreme situations like this don't create trends, they tend to reveal them. And I think in regards to the restaurant industry, that's certainly true. Um, you know, it has been a very low profit industry. And, and the solution to that traditionally has been sort of battle to the bottom, you know, wait it out, hope for the best or get really lucky and get some good press and, and a great local, uh, local consumer and things like that. And it, it's just, just no, no other business really operates that way. There's not really any other industry that has, um, that has on one hand been uh, so affected by, um, you know, how people think about the raw materials. So the, the cost of food is so artificially driven down mm -hmm. and so uh, subsidized by our spending on our health. Um, to, to reach this really low price point, which presents a huge challenge. Um, but it's also been incredibly complacent in evolving or adjusting or um, trying to seek out new ideas. There's, there's not a lot of successful industries where when there's a bit of a squeeze or a necessary change to the model, that their response is not, hey, we need to evolve and think outside the box and develop new methods. Instead, it's let's just keep on doing what we're doing and hopefully <laughs> people get it. And then it doesn't seem to be working. Okay, let's close down. And um, 
the other the other issue that you have with the restaurant industry is that it's predominantly an industry of very small businesses with a few medium-sized businesses and then a couple of very large businesses that have a lot of exposure and you know a small business uh, is not really afforded the luxury of long-term strategic planning or thinking outside the box or taking particularly large risks either Mm -hmm. and so you create an industry of people who are just sort of trying to fit the mold as well as they can um uh, because that seems to be the only really, you know, method for success. And I think that th- that creates a number of problems. Um, you know, any, anything that refuses to evolve, you know, chooses to die essentially. Right. Uh, and, uh, that small minded thinking, uh, really doesn't encourage self-reflection or actualization. And, um, I think that's allowed for a lot of the systemic issues um, that have come up when it comes to diversity, to, uh, sexual harassment, to, uh, you know, bureaucracy, uh, to a really outdated view of what management and leadership looks like that is sort of like inherently oppressive, um, to a complete uh, lack of uh, equality of compensation or even sort of uh, competition that's relative to the, to the work that's put in. And um, it's interesting that sort of society has deemed some of these things to, to no longer be, or to really require a light to be shone on them. Um, at the same time that the restaurant industry is sort of already like a bit down and out because um, my hope is that it encourages a, a rebuilding that's much more focused on some of these. And I think it sort of has to at this point because the, the, uh, the societal ethics have, have adjusted and, um, you know, the newer generation is uh, a lot more uh, forward thinking when it comes to this sort of thing and, and demands this more, which sure. I view as being something, I mean, it's not just positive, it's also just sort of necessary. And so I, you know, it's been interesting to hear you know, a lot of people in the restaurant industry talking about millennials. And I think as soon as someone uses that framework, they've already like really exposed themselves as being um, behind the times a little bit because what they're actually talking about is just the future generation period. Right. And, and so the cynicism that's directed towards that is like dismissive. And uh, I think like a, a sign of personal failure, to be honest with you, because you, like, a da- again, you evolve or you die really. Right. So, um, you know, I think it's important that we, as an industry, like really just listen to what is being expressed and to really take a, a very deep look inward to understand how, like how we got here. You know, I think you have to acknowledge first that there's a massive problem. And I think if you haven't got there, I'm not, I can't really help you with that, you know, but right. once you've acknowledged that, then the question becomes very much like, how did this happen? How did we get to this place? Well, when you look at it on paper, it's, it's, it seems ethically like incorrect. It seems morally not really in line, uh, functionally and practically not very, um, you know, intelligent either. Um, and I think that's the place it needs to really be started at. And I think the, the, the quicker and more radically um, businesses and business leaders are able to, to address that and ask themselves those questions and, and create a very transparent, open conversation around that stuff, um, the sooner we get things back on track or, or start something new, which will then evolve into something that's a bit more functional for the times that we're in. Um, yeah, from, from an environmental standpoint, from a social st- standpoint, and from an economic standpoint. Are you worried that younger uh, generations won't come into the industry? Um, you know, especially now with the pandemic, you know, showing how difficult this industry can be. Do you worry about that? I mean, there's been labor shortages in this industry for years. And um, and some of the topics that you've alluded to in your answer um, show that the industry is broken in various ways. So do do you worry about what that does for the future of the industry? Can you can you um, ask the question just in the shortest 
frame possible. All right. Um, Sorry, what, I just, are, yeah, are, you like worried, are you worried that we're not going to get people to work in this industry because of these issues? I, I would be more worried that people would continue in spite of them. So um, I think the solution is clear and that's adjust and evolve. And that's where I intend to put my energy. So, so I'm, I'm worried that we won't deserve those people coming to work in the industry. Uh, there's no, there's no secret to what drives and motivates people. I mean, this is, you know, something that's it's widely studied. It's widely understood. It's widely written about, um, you know, there's no, you know, treat people with respect, provide a purpose built business model, um, provide equitable compensation, treat people like human beings. It's not much to it. Pretty you know? simple, right? <laughs> it, yeah, it really is. And, and, uh, and unfortunately those things have been, um, uh, conspicuously absent from a lot of restaurant business models. And I ref reflect on my own experience growing up where, uh, I was, I was on the, the wrong side of a power dynamic, um, in, in a lot of environments that I was working in. Yet I was fortunate enough to be raised in an environment that very much prized uh, a human view on everything, mm -hmm. uh, be it uh, capitalism or uh, you know any any sort of you know uh, relationships and interactions and, and negotiation and how all that stuff worked. And so I had a the odd experience on one hand, um, you know, being uh, very sort of awestruck and inspired by these really creative environments and these international. Um, you know, restaurants and different styles of food and cuisine and ways of thinking about things and the creativity that came with that while simultaneously, you know, just being completely confused and uh, conflicted around how we interact with one another, how we engaged with the workplace, you know, how the, the bureaucracy that came with it, the, the strange systems that were in place, um, you know, the strange emotional management styles, uh, the, it just didn't make sense and it didn't feel, um, sustainable. And, uh, so the, and the, and the funny thing was at that point, I thought I was wrong because I didn't have enough experience to understand that that wasn't the case. So there's, it it's certainly somewhat refreshing to see, uh, the industry confronted on these issues and have to sort of like collectively respond to that as well. I think there's, there's a bit of value in that, that, mm -hmm. you know, I can't sit here and say like, well, I'm not a part of that because I do things this way. Like I have to accept the fact that I am part of an industry that is, um, you know, so, uh, has been so poorly conceived and it has done such a poor job of, of you know, uh, uh, evolving from, from within for a myriad of reasons that I discussed before, you know, not no small part is the, you know, cost of food being driven down, you know, the legislative system around alcohol sales in Ontario is very difficult. Yeah. It's like, there's a lot of reasons, not just sure. a bunch of stupid people didn't think outside the box. That's not what I mean, but, um, but uh, that certainly helped to prep me a little bit more for, for saying, okay, you know, obviously that wasn't working. Obviously real adults with emotional intelligence will not subject themselves to working in these environments because it's not logical and it just doesn't feel right. And it's not a good thing. So let's create a, an environment that is logical and does feel right and is based on, you know, transparency and honesty and, and, uh, and working in a way that we're excited about. And, and that will be our way of getting, you know, getting ourselves out of this. And so. So, so Daniel, um, you, you've got great views on this and opinions. And, and I guess, would you be able to share, I guess, how you do things differently in the restaurant to, to break some of those barriers that exist in this industry? I mean, what, what are you doing there? Obviously your concept and, your menu is quite unique. The restaurant itself is unique. But how is your style as an operator different from what we see in so many other restaurants? Maybe that can shed some light on 
what the industry needs to do. Although, like you said, it's not it's not rocket science, but yet it is still a problem. What are you doing differently? So I think um, one thing that's really, really important, and I felt it was always very, very much lacking, is that we really prize feedback and we really encourage and empower feedback to come from any source. Um, in fact, the more so it comes from people of less experience, I think the more exciting that is for sure. So just even trying to create that environment is a, is a huge challenge, first of all, to break away from the traditional model of restaurants that I came up in. It's all mm-hmm. I knew coming up as well and trying to reconceive that is complicated, but excuse me, encouraging, valuing and empowering that feedback is so important because, you know, whether it's the, the adjustments that are made, the educational process, the hiring processes, um, you know, how we source, how we communicate, whatever the case is, we have a lot of really intelligent people here that can provide information on if that's working or not, or where there's a blind spot or where uh, something is vague or, or inconsistent or whatever the case is. So even just opening the door to that has so many huge benefits, you know, um, encouraging people to hold us accountable to uh, commitments we've made to, uh, um, you know, compensation or uh, how we share ideas or how we communicate um, is really, really effective. And, and the notion for me of having a team of people that have that confidence to speak up when something's not right and to even, you know, as best to make suggestions on, on how it could possibly function better is so much more interesting of a world to me than one where everyone is intimidated by process and feels that um, decision-making and creative thinking is something that is a light switch you have to turn on when you're suddenly um, promoted into a management position. Right. Because that's, a, that's another element for me in restaurants that is highly non-functional, which is the kind of complete lack of regard for what management, leadership, and coaching looks like and how to prepare people effectively for that instead of just prizing um, high-level uh, execu- executors and continually promoting them based on that. Because that personality type isn't certainly is not the most effective in a, in a leadership standpoint. And, and how about the whole concept of tipping? What do you feel about that? I know there's so much discussion in the industry these days that perhaps it's time that we dispense of tipping um, and get rid of it totally. What's what's your opinion on that? Um, so I think when it comes, when it I try to I try to not have too much of an opinion necessarily in the sense of being emotionally based because I think that conversation is one that I'm a bit bored of at this point. But I think what is interesting is that you know there's data-driven evidence that, you know, when you leave the choice of, when you essentially, essentially the subsidizing of wages by the customer is not an effective way at creating equality of distribution in any environment. There's no model where that's effective. And there's not even really many models where that's even utilized uh, in any sort of way. Um, It doesn't actually even encourage merit. It encourages performance, which is, um, which is not a great thing, you know. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not. Again, it's not an equitable way of distributing compensation. And um, the notion of of encouraging the customer to subsidize that compensation is something that that just doesn't really work. And the right. funny thing is, is so many times when I've addressed that, the first question I'll get back from journalists or from opponents or whatever will be. Um, so, so what do you suggest then? What do you think is a better way? And my response is always quite simply the way that every single other business works, which is you do the work and you're compensated for the work and the customer is charged the, um, the price for that work, including the cost of labor. Um, 
again, very easy to say this stuff, much more difficult in actual practice. Um, you know, you have to select for the right types of people who are open-minded about this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to adjust to expectations on what industry standard is. Um, you know, we've had to constantly rejig and adjust uh, what compensation looks like. And to be frank, during uh, when we reopened the tents during the pandemic, uh, we did actually allow for um, people, people had the option of, of providing a custom tip. So you wouldn't get the asked. 12% or 18% or whatever, you would, right. you would have to click on a separate option that either, you would either just keep going through or you had to click on something that said custom. And actually, this was a pragmatic response to what we found to be, first of all, a bunch of our staff had just been laid off for months. And the idea of them having to actively discourage competition, it wasn't something I felt great about. But the other component was that guests were, especially our regular clientele, were just not willing to go with that model. You know, their assertion was essentially like, hey, listen, like, we know you guys have been struggling. This is illogical. You know, we've been blown away by the experience. Like, like, what are we, are we gluing money to the bottom of the table here? Like, what's going on? And I think that came from a familiarity with, you know, when people were in delivery, they were going over the top. If, if they were going out to time, they were going over the top right. with, with um, gratuity because they felt it was a way that they could provide some support. So that being said, there's, you know, on one hand, of course, okay, yes, you know, we want to create a, a system whereby this can more or less work. However, there's all these other issues that exist. And our solve for that is that the, the money that comes in from those gratuities are completely evenly distributed amongst the entire staff. Um, based on the amount of time that they spent engaging um, with the service with those customers. So it's not relative to seniority or position or um, anything other than, uh, you know, if you worked X many hours, then you receive this level of compensation um, as a result of that. So, we, and we view that very much as a bonus. So, and that's something that I'm sort of considering, you know, is that something that has a world or is that, is that a world that has, that has, a, that can be an effective way for us to um, deal with the market? Because the thing is, is that I don't think, as a business that we get any any new customers necessarily because of our compensation model. And it's something that guests are generally sort of like, oh, okay, cool. And, and that's about it. So I've been considering if there's a, a smarter way that we can go about it. But um, yeah, I mean, personally, I think that there's something to a compensation model that takes into account the business and that provides a little bit more of um, a profit sharing component. Mm-hmm. So whether that be that essentially on a weekly basis, uh, you know, there's a base salary and then that's supported by overall sales, which means that in times when there's, you know, a mad rush and tons of work and people are putting in extra effort, that the conversation is reflective of that. But conversely, if we are in a bit of a slower time or we are in winter time or whatever the case is, that um, uh, it doesn't require like you know any sort of layoff or a change to the model. It just requires staff understanding that, hey, you're on for the ride. So the hope is that, you know, at worst, they're sort of at industry standard and at best, um, there's a significant um, rise above that. But that's something for me that I'm just kind of trying to toy with and understand like what that looks like. But, but uh, the notion of the staff being directly compensated for the work that they're doing in a way that's very tangible and also having some allegiance over that because we do encourage people to hold us accountable and say that hey this thing that we're doing you know doesn't make sense and negatively affects customer experience and thusly you know at its very root my compensation at the end of the at the end of the month is affected by that you know what's going on here explain this to me like i think that's a really healthy conversation to have um you know whatever the results that comes from it as but again you know putting people in the position where they essentially are like a bit in control of their own they have allegiance over that and and right. they have to think about it as well you know how does this thing that i do affect this other side of it because you know i want to create an environment where everyone is encouraged to foster their own entrepreneurial spirit it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone needs to be some charismatic like you know coach and and rule the world or come up with the next like great great idea but i don't think that's what that means i think it means you know, having a really thoughtful and dynamic and critical thinking approach to sort of your everyday. And those skills are transferable to any environment. So do you think we're on the road to some substantive change in the industry now that this pandemic has opened the eyes 
of so many people on so many fronts. Do you, do you see that being a positive moving forward? Yeah, I suppose it's like, uh, that's like asking like, how quick can you turn an aircraft carrier, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, you know, you're talking about a big, cumbersome, um, very disjointed uh, industry um, with not necessarily aligned interests across the board because it's so dynamic. And so how do you turn that? I mean, either, ultimately, I'll give you the simple answer on this. Ultimately, I believe that real change will only come through a certain degree of legislation because that's the only sort of organized component to this whole thing. So whether that be, you know, uh, uh, a different approach to how uh, gratuity works or to what the bottom line is or to wages, I think could be really, really effective um, increasing that baseline wage to something that's more in line with, with real the reality of, of being a human being in Ontario mm -hmm. um, forces uh, certain actions to occur. But, um, you know, it's, what are you going to do? You're going to tell a bunch of people running small businesses with razor thin margins, they need to rethink their culture and you know, reestablish a Good paradigm point. for what the business model is going forward. Like, what? Who's going to listen to that? You know, I'm in a privileged position where I'm young, I'm energetic. I was exposed to a lot of dynamic environments. I'm surrounded by incredibly supportive people that also encourage thinking outside the box and are willing to get behind this stuff. And I have an investor that's on board with with um, you know all these processes. So I'm like the most privileged that you, that you know you could sort of be with that. But that's also why it's important for me to take all this stuff seriously. Uh, is because if not if not us, then how is it even remotely practical for anyone else? So, you know, if your question is like, how quickly is that going to happen? My answer is like probably as quickly as anything else at this scale, which is like incredibly slowly with many hiccups and also dependent on how much public will pushes things in a direction, right? So. All right. And, and I guess from your perspective, too, with your restaurant being, you know, a higher end restaurant, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, fine dining. Are you worried about fine dining in, in, in the post COVID-19 era? Um, I think this time has also exposed people to, you know, doing a lot more takeout and takeout tends to focus more on casual dining as opposed to fine dining. What are your thoughts on that? So um, the simple answer would be I'm not at all concerned about uh, about fine dining because uh, well no I'm not, I'm concerned about anyone that isn't capable of adapting and evolving uh, and you can you can put that on any business so whether that's uh, any sort of fine dining restaurant that that sort of thinks they're at the epitome and, and isn't willing to make any adjustments to that yeah that's going to be problematic you're going to have some trouble and you know especially in a time like now when it's important to be somewhat adaptive um, but sort of more generally I think I'd probably be more concerned about like the the mid-level sort of mid-tier um you know uh, what would you call it casual casual sit-down dining um because that's very replicable in environments other than restaurants but i think probably my more direct answer to that would be something that i've been saying for it would feel to be years now which is that you know the, the times of a restaurant operating functionally based on what happens within the four walls in the dining room is long gone. And what I mean when I say functionally is a staff that can take sick days and can take vacation and can, uh, and is, is, is provided by benefits, which the fact that that's even a conversation is, is frankly sad. Um, and, and to me is in, you know, indicative of an industry that is not working. Like you can't, like, you can't, like people can't go to the dentist. First of all, you don't pay them enough. Meanwhile, if they have an emergency, they don't even have any support system to go to the dentist. Like, 
this is bad. You know, this doesn't work. This is and whatever metric you want to use. Like you can't have something where you can't pay people for the work that they've done. Or, right. you know, you're always on net 30 with everything you're paying bills from 30 days ago. You know, it's interesting. Eric, the chef at the restaurant here, was making a point about how, you know, you know, you had restaurateurs going on on the the news or whatever and saying, you know, we, we, we operate at 2% margin and, you know, we, we're paying our bills right now from 30 days ago and blah, blah, blah. And it was interesting to see the rest of society go, well, why the hell are you doing that? Like, what? that sounds like a terrible way to operate things. That doesn't make any sense. I, I don't think you should do that. And it is very demonstrative because in any other business, you would look at that and say, Jesus, what the hell is going on here? So, so that being said, you know, what fine dining restaurants offer, or, you know, specifically what we think of ourselves as more as sort of experiential um, because we're not really fussed about the traditional definitions of fine dining, which is, you know, the white linens and the very, you know, straight back and, and overly formal and things like that. But we are very fussed about authenticity and experience. And that's where we, that's our angle towards luxury is how genuine and, and thoughtful the whole process is. And uh, I'm quite unconcerned about, about that environment. I think that's not got much to worry about. Um, the other one that I think I'm probably a little bit concerned about is the mom and pop, uh, um, we're so fortunate in Canada and Ontario to have this really dynamic range of, of uh, nationalities uh, represented in food. And uh, I'm definitely concerned about, you know, a bit of a lack of support or awareness or ability on, on of, of marketing communications in order to continue to survive. But the fact is that we live in a capitalistic society. We've all accepted this and the market corrects and it corrects again, corrects again, and, and you sort of keep up or not. So. Well, I mean, you've said so many great points there, Daniel, and it's uh, it's it's a huge topic, obviously, and it's going to take a lot of time to, like you said, direct this plane into the right uh, into the right direction. Um, I guess over the last year, we've all learned a lot of different lessons through COVID. What have been some of your biggest lessons that you've learned through this health crisis? Um, okay, so definitely one of them that comes up for me is. Uh, you know, reconsidering what the nature of the business is and not just thinking of ourselves as only a restaurant, which is actually very empowering. And I think that process is a healthy one for any business to go through. Because again, you know, you know, think about the sophistication that this is building into, excuse me, hospitality businesses, businesses in general that are surviving in spite of this. You know, the framework has changed from, hey, if things aren't going great, you know, let's drop prices. And if that doesn't work, that to, hey, let's reinvent ourselves, you know, 50 times over. Um, and, and see what might work. And if really we can't find something or we lose a desire for this, then that, that's the real message there. But I think that in and of itself, you know, as, as sort of a young uh, entrepreneurial person, I think that's a really exciting lesson to learn. And the same way that people, uh, you know, going through the 2008 recession and sort of surviving that um, were really, really effective. So um, I think that in and of itself is, is a really positive thing. Um, for myself personally, um, a big thing that came up was, was uh, improving delegation. I think that was something that I was uh, not very effective at. Um, and that's been extremely important uh, in terms of creating room for growth of people as well. Um, has been really, really important. As well as really focusing and understanding on what culture uh, means and, and how important it is in a business like this, where so much of what we do is based on like emotional connection. Mm-hmm. And so just getting like a real a real smart handle on what that is and, and kind of getting forced into that has been really, really, really helpful. And uh, it's encouraged us to build trust as a team as well, which has been um, a really exciting sort of learning and growth. And, and I guess seeing the value of building that trust and investing in those things that, you know, sometimes 
intuitively in terms of the steps that they take on a day-to-day basis seem like they're going to slow things down, but ultimately are, are you know, so effective in, in building things out. And so I think even the opportunity to just get like slapped in the face a little bit and, and have to like stop as a result of that and say, okay, what the hell's going on? What just happened? Why did it happen? You know, how can we make it better? You know, pandemic or not, that's been really, really, really helpful. Um, on, you know, on, on, a, on another side, I think what's been really indicative is how many processes that we had built in actually have been so helpful to us. So, you know, having our entire staff being salaried instead of relying on uh, minimum wage meant that even when we did have to lay people off, they were still at the, the, the highest point of, of uh, the compensation that was provided for that. It's a small thing, but it is something right. that's sort of like, okay, cool, that's a good thing. Um, you know, our, the, the stuff that I spoke about earlier on with the supply chain, like just knowing how supported we are by the supply chain was really exciting. I mean, we couldn't have been more flush with, with resources um, during that yes. time. And so it was really nice to see that or even yeah, to see our own preserves, like, you know, we've got mountains and mountains of preserves here. And at this, I mean, at this point we could, you know, it's probably almost like to survive a year type thing or something like that, but just sort of seeing how that operated was very uh, validating and very encouraging in terms of where to direct our energy in the future as well. So we had built in a lot of um, pieces to the business that were sort of naturally uh, anti-fragile uh, to steal that phrase. And um, that, that was motivating to understand that, okay, those have been really effective and, and that sort of stuff is going to help us going forward. So um, that was really exciting as well. I think that I've always, um, as a, in terms of the business side of things, been very mindful about keeping a good little cushion of cash um, so that we weren't in that net 30 position so that we never had to struggle with, with staff or suppliers or investing when need be or whatever the case was. And ironically, we were the most cash poor we've ever been uh, leading into the pandemic due to having shut down, invested a ton in the garden, really prepping ourselves for what we expected to be a very busy spring and summer. And I think in, it's funny because ultimately all that is, is already is and will have worked out very, very well for us. But I think that um, uh, pragmatically that could have also gone, gone to hell a little bit. So I think I would just be all that cautious, even when things seem a little bit determined. Um, to, to really maintain that. And um, there's one more thing that came to mind. There's something else I can't remember what. Anyways, but when it comes to things like cleanliness and all that stuff, I mean, we were already like so over the top about it. You know, maybe like you know, if someone's sick, we were always, if you're sick, stay yeah. home. There's no questions asked. Just stay home. Like that's not a thing. I think, yeah, the mask thing has been interesting though. I think if anyone even has a little sniffle or anything, it's just like, yeah, just wear the mask, get the hell out of here. Right. So I think even that is really important because, um, you know, that's not how we, it's the same thing with like school kids and stuff. It's like, Everyone talks about it, but if you're, if you're a bit sick, you're expected to work or you're expected to go to school, or you're expected to do whatever. And when you think about it, like that's actually gross, you know, like that's not, so you know, true. and I get it. Like if, you, if you're unwell, obviously stay home, but we tend to really underestimate what unwell can mean. And it's like, just stay home, it's just a day and it's your health and it's the health of all those other people. Like, you know, if one person's sick and then, oh, and then, you know, one person gets sick and everyone gets sick. It's like, that's disgusting. Like that's awful, you know? And, and, and so just taking that even that much more seriously than we already were before, um, you know, again, or just sort of validating how important that stuff is, I, I think is, is really um, interesting to do that as well. So. I think you're absolutely right. And I think in the past, pre-COVID, we all kind of wore that as a badge of honor, you know, that even if we had a cold or whatever, we weren't feeling well, we'd still go into work. And this has really shown everybody just how awful that mentality is. So I think that's a lesson we've all picked up through COVID. Um, as always, Daniel, it's, it's a treat talking to you. You have such great views on every aspect of this industry, and you're doing some really great work at Pearl Morissette. And, and I really value uh, you taking some time to speak with us today and, and share your thoughts and insights. And, and hopefully we won't, uh, we won't be at this for too much longer and we can get back to 
normal, whatever that is, right? Um, so thank you for your time and for your energy and passion. Always very appreciated. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Table Talk Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to rate and review our show. Also, make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button. For additional resources related to today's episode, please visit our website, foodserviceandhospitality.com. Until next time.